Welcome back. My name is Carolyn Munley, and on today's episode, we are going to be talking about food deserts and food apartheids. These may be terms that you're familiar with, or maybe these terms are new to you. We'll get to that, but I first want to talk to a few friends about food access, what it is to them, their experiences, and their reactions to a simple question. How do you access something so important to life? Food. I access food by um, utilizing the personal transportation that I have to um, buy groceries at the store. Usually I get my groceries at Target just because it's a good centralized location to get other household items. Um, If I'm in a bind, I also get items at um, Fresh in downtown Madison. However, that's never my first choice because it's very expensive. And then I also have um, money from my residence life job that I can use at the campus um, little supermarket to get any other odds and ends. I access my food from carpooling with my friends who have their own cars and we go to pick and save just a few few miles off of campus and that's typically just like the cheapest most accessible option um we do have fresh market which is much more expensive if um i just need like certain items that i can't utilize a car for Mm -hmm. those were two of my friends nicole and isabel and their answers give us an insight into the considerations some people may have when accessing food, such as cost and distance. But there's no getting around the fact that food is essential. But what happens when your grocery store, like the ones my friends just described, are miles and miles away? Or what happens when your closest food is processed, unhealthy, and not culturally appropriate for you? Um... Food access has a lot of different determinants. That's Libby. She's going to be our expert today. So I am Libby Schnaff. I'm one of the um, co-executive directors of Slow Food UW, and I'm also a senior at UW-Madison studying community and environmental sociology and food systems. We have to make sure food is um, like geographically accessible. So having grocery stores or farmers markets or community gardens um, or really generally any place people procure food um, accessible um, for community members, oftentimes in more urban areas that has to be by foot. Um, but as we get out into the suburbs, um, Cars are obviously included in that um, concept as well. Um, Another thing is culturally appropriate food is super important um, when we're thinking about food access. Um, If food isn't, um, if it doesn't mesh with the community that it's like a part of, then it is not um, as valuable in my opinion. Um, The last part of food access is making sure um, food is financially accessible for the community. To understand food access as an essential part of life, we need to start by defining the term food sovereignty. According to the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, food sovereignty is the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods, and their right to define their own food and agriculture systems. And this is really the key here. Food sovereignty is more than just accessing food. It is the process of obtaining food that is culturally appropriate for an area given a person's circumstances and the systemic barriers that may prevent a person from obtaining food given those circumstances. 
So the question is, why should you care? Food at its essence brings people together. It builds community and bridges cultures. Food is a basic need, but more than that, it is a basic right. The right to food is protected under international human rights and humanitarian law. This essential right has been distanced or taken away from communities. According to census data, over 5.6% of the U.S. population is living in areas with limited access to food. And within that, 30% more non-white residents are facing limited access to food retail than white residents. This right is ongoing and requires immediate attention and care. Food, in this sense, is a form of resistance against the systems of oppression that have limited groups from access to healthy, appropriate food. In this episode, we will learn about food sovereignty and food deserts in the United States, how this has played out in Madison, and finally take a look into ways organizations are using food groups as a form of resistance against the oppressive side of the food system. So let's start with the basics. Let's define food deserts. Food desert is a term that is important to understand when we're talking about food sovereignty. Food deserts means that there is an absence of healthy food alternatives given the lack of supermarkets selling fresh produce. This term was originally coined in 1995 by the Scottish Nutrition Task Force as a way to describe geographic areas that lack sufficient access to grocery stores. While this term is a start to describing the holes in the food system, it can be a very simplified definition that doesn't really capture the complex and systematic dimensions that play into the causes and consequences of a lack of healthy food access. In response to the gaps in that definition, there is a newer term being used by sociologists and food system experts to better describe the food system as it really is. A system. An institution. This term is called food apartheid. Food apartheid can be defined similar to food desert, but it turns the attention to the man-made and intentionality of the food system. Calling something a desert implies that this was natural and out of control of those in power. Food apartheid highlights the structural causes behind the condition. Rather than assuming that the issue is simply a lack of access to grocery stores, food apartheid asks the questions of why there is a lack of unhealthy food. This definition highlights the structural failures that resulted in inadequate access to nutrient-rich food. It frames the lack of access to food in terms of the systemic racism that caused this food injustice. Yeah, so food desert is sort of... um an older term um, that describes a place that is um, lacking in fresh or culturally relevant foods. Um, Where the term food desert is lacking in its definition is that it assumes a place is inherently um, or even naturally desertified um, and that it, it doesn't always value the community-led efforts in food security, like community gardens and mutual aid, which often go under the radar um, in like mapping technologies um, when we're placing like grocery stores and other places people buy food on a map. Um, And food apartheid um, does see those intersecting um, oppressions in a geographic sense um, in that it understands um, food insecurity as a manufactured concept and that it is a product of policy and zoning um, and inequity in um, geographic spaces. So now that we know a little bit more about those 
basic definitions of food desert versus food apartheid. Let's see how this plays out in a city that we all know and love, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, so I think in the conversation um, of Madison food, food desert is more often used than food apartheid, even though I very much see parts of Madison in, in food apartheid more than I think they could be defined as, as a food desert. Madison has a history of food insecurity and food deserts around the entire city, but for the purposes of this podcast, I want to shift the focus to South Madison. South Madison has a very long and rich history. Throughout the 1900s, several neighborhoods were home to mainly people of color, and they were bulldozed, forcing them to relocate to South Madison. It's important to note that these neighborhoods were never really welcomed from the start. Take Greenbush for an example. The original Greenbush neighborhood was located just outside of the University of Wisconsin. The neighborhood was established in the mid-1880s and was home to marginalized populations that were typically unwelcomed in Madison, largely of Italian descent. Greenbush has been the target of greater social issues throughout its entire history. Systemic oppression and poverty were mislabeled and disregarded by the city, and the neighborhood was eventually bulldozed in the late 1950s for an urban renewal project forcing its residents to again relocate to the end of Park Street in the South Madison area. Greenbush was the start of a domino effect that has resulted in now the south side of Madison. But let's back up here. I mentioned a street, Park Street. It's important to this story. You can think of Park Street as the central vein that connects South Madison. Public transportation runs up and down the entire street. Just think of Park Street as an easy access for all of South Madison population to get around. It's important to the livelihood of the population, and it's also home to a grocery store called Pick and Save, which is where our story continues. The Pick and Save on Park Street is the main grocery store in the area. It is connected to the major bus lines and provides the South Madison neighborhoods with food. In 2018, however, a proposal from SSM Health proposed to take over the pick-and-save lot, which threatened the food access of the entire area. Without the pick-and-save, South Madison would be a food desert. The residents of South Madison voiced their concerns and SSM Health decided to relocate their clinic to their current destination on South Fish Hatchery Road. Although this never came to fruition, this highlights the gaps in the food systems of Madison and the lack of consistent, reliable food access in specific neighborhoods. And while a lot of people and a lot of the articles that I found when researching this topic do claim that this would result in a food desert, in many ways you can also think of this as a food apartheid. Think about the history of South Madison that I just explained. The unstable state of the food system of South Madison is not an accident. It's a result of years of oppression and racism, as exemplified by the urban renewal projects in the 1960s that bulldozed over the homes of immigrants and forced them to relocate. My work has taken me to South Madison um, and working with community-led efforts to expand food access in South Madison, which is a community in food apartheid. Um, The one grocery store in the like larger South Madison neighborhood, um, the pick and save on South Park Street was under a contract that is um, going to be up in a 
couple years if it hasn't already been. And so pick and save will be um, phasing out of the neighborhood, which places them in even greater um, food apartheid and lack of food security. Um, and a lot of community-led efforts have popped up around this. Um, local, smaller scale, mom and pop grocery stores and food access work um, through community-led efforts, like the work that Slow Food does in South Madison, um, aid in all of that and increasing food security in the South Madison area. But it definitely is not as powerful as the policy that creates these inequities in the food system. So I think that food um, apartheid has to be met with, you know, aid and food access initiatives um, led by community members, but also like structural policy change um, that make it accessible for grocery stores um, to open up in areas in food apartheid. Libby's work with Slow Food and Beyond highlights some of the organizations that are working on this resistance, a resistance that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. I want to highlight someone who has kind of formed this movement and formed the definition of resistance within the food system, Monica White. Monica White is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is well known for her powerful work with food systems. Dr. White focuses her research on using agriculture as a form of resistance against the systemic barriers that are resulting in food insecurity to rebuild and construct a better, healthier community. Dr. White's research focuses on the city of Detroit, and more specifically, an African-American activist group called the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, and their work to restore community and food access among the systemic failures that have resulted in food insecurity in their area. White argues that their work is a, quote, resistance strategy to recreate a sense of community around intergenerational engagement, exercise, and better quality food. Detroit took on this resistance strategy through urban farming that reclaimed their economic autonomy and reshaped their sense of community and engagement. Madison, on the other hand, uses the same idea of resistance in other ways. The pick and save is just one example of resistance through the form of activism and community engagement to help support food security and food sovereignty in the Madison location as people came together to fight against the SSM health relocation that would have resulted in a food desert. Libby's work with Slow Food UW is another example of an organization that is helping uplift this resistance. She'll touch more on that now. So Slow Food um, is involved in the South Madison community food scene um, since 2008 um, when we talked to South Madison farmer um, Robert Pierce, who runs the South Madison Farmer's Market now and continues to farm a piece of land um, off of Rimrock Road. Um, and he, we asked him how Slow Food could get involved in the South Madison community. And he said very simply to teach kids how to cook. So since that moment, we have expanded food access, nutrition, education, cooking, gardening programs in the South Madison area, partnering with pre-existing efforts um, from the Boys and Girls Club to Badger Rock Middle School to the Goodman um, Library and um, 
the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery, which is not in um, South Madison, but we also have partnerships there um, where we we really don't attempt to address the full systemic scope of um, food apartheid in South Madison, but we see ourselves as a embedded part of the network of aid that um, helps bring good, clean, fair food to South Madison, which is inherent in our mission. I hesitate to say that slow food is a part of that resistance because um, we are Although we do um, are intentional with partnering with pre-existing um, community-led efforts, we are not like we will never be as embedded in the fabric of South Madison as South Madison residents and the communities we work with. Um, nor are we entirely oppressed in the conversation of food apartheid. Um, but I do think the organizations we work with are a part of this resistance. Um, considering the like overlapping oppressions that um, the industrial food system and politics place in order to keep people away from food sovereignty and being able to claim what they can and cannot eat. Um, particularly in this um, effort, I think Robert Pierce, South Madison farmer and farmer's market, uh, South Madison farmer's market manager, is definitely a big part of this resistance. He has a program um, that involves formerly incarcerated people and teaching them how to farm, um, which I think is an entirely revolutionary act and um, a part of resisting the many um, oppressions that go along with keeping communities in food apartheid. When you look at the food system as a whole, there are a lot of ways to pick apart and define the systemic gaps and oppressive side of food sovereignty. Organizations from Detroit to Madison and beyond are fighting to combat this and fighting for their right to clean, fresh, appropriate food. Thank you to our guests, Nicole, Isabel, and Libby for sharing their insight into the Madison food system. I hope this episode was an opportunity for you to learn about terms such as food sovereignty, food desert, and food apartheid, and hopefully you are walking away with inspiration to join the agriculture scene as a form of resistance wherever you live. Thank you.